This week on The Truth of It, the federal election result, an opportunity for religious freedom, invoking Jesus in public debate, actually a very serious matter. And finally, Israel Folau. What are his options from here? G'day, I'm Martin Isles, and this is The Truth of It, ACL's weekly newscast on politics and current events, where we cut through the fake news and bring you what it says on the tin, which is The Truth of It. And the first item today, I want to talk about the ongoing fallout from the federal election. A couple of weeks ago now, but my goodness, what an election it was. The polls did not predict it. Wrong for the first time in Australia's federal election history. The uh, the now analysts did not predict it really at all. The uh, betting markets did not predict it. In fact, Sportsbet paid out a couple of days before the election on their certainty that a shortened Labor government would win uh, and, of course, ended up looking very silly indeed and no doubt losing a heck of a lot of money. Um, But on that federal election, I want to point this out now that the commentary has been rolling for a little while. And that is this. Several Christian groups campaigned very hard in this election, like we've never campaigned before, on religious freedom and related social issues. None of these issues got serious airtime or significant mentions during the election campaign, with the exception of just a couple of sound bites from the Prime Minister and maybe a little bit here and a little bit there. But it was never, ever a serious consideration from the media or indeed part of the headline messaging of either major party. And yet all of these issues are being talked about now, despite the best efforts of some of them to sideline them. They're being called in the uh, post-election commentary sleeper issues, that is, things that impacted the results in key seats which were not part of the headline campaign messaging at all. Why? How is that possible? Well, very simple. Faith communities were one of the groups that made a difference to the result. Not all of them, but one of the groups that made a difference to the result. And that was not only by the votes of their own members, but, and I can testify to this because we were part of this effort, it was also because perhaps more critically, their campaign activities into the community made a difference. Um, Do you know ACL actually campaigned in three of the four decider seats, I call them. These are the four seats that were declared in the days following the election night, which cemented the coalition's majority and their position in government. They were Chisholm, Bass in Tasmania, Boothby in South Australia, Chisholm being Victoria, and also Wentworth Wentworth in Sydney. Now, of course, Wentworth went from Karen Phelps to Dave Sharma, the Independent, back to Liberal. We didn't campaign there, but in the other three, we were active on the ground. And Chisholm in particular, in eastern suburbs of Melbourne, that was considered a seat which Labor would gain. And yet against the odds, and despite some difficulties and some controversy on the ground there, it did not go to Labor. In fact, um, Gladys Liu won that seat. Um, And this was the story right across the board. Um, Post-election analysis shows that these seats where there are faith communities and where these sleeper issues were taken directly to the people through letterboxes, through door knocks and through phone calls, these seats, uh, these seats had communities where hard swings towards the coalition were recorded. We could look, for example, down in Tasmania. Now, as a whole, the state of Tasmania swung to the coalition away from Labor. But the entirety of that swing can be attributed to the two seats in the north, Braddon and Bass. 
What is it about Braddon and Bass that's different to the rest of the state? Well, actually, people don't often know this, but Tasmania is the least religious state or the least Christian state in Australia. Uh, and Braddon and Bass, however, are the part of Tasmania where most of the religious communities exist. One of the reasons, one of them, not all of it, but one of the reasons why there was a change recorded in those seats. Or you could turn to Western Australia and you say, well, what happened in WA? Well, ACO was actually active in the seat of Canning, which is the seat of um, the government MP, Andrew Hastie. Many of you might know of him. Andrew Hastie recorded the largest swing towards him of any Liberal member in the whole state. Now, what is it about Canning? Not only that there was the campaign there, but also Canning south of Perth is an area where there is a very large and a rapidly growing Christian community. And newspapers in Western Australia have since reported on the fact that the campaign to those people and the activation of those people was crucial to the result there. Or we could turn, of course, to Queensland. Obviously, Queensland, a bit patriotic here for it's my home state, but obviously Queensland had the Adani factor in the rural areas. But there were big swings in Brisbane big swings in the southeast corner, big swings in seats where Adani wasn't such a big issue. But you know something, Queensland is the most Christian state in Australia. Brisbane is the most Christian capital city in Australia. Do you know there are seats there? Uh, John Black, the demographer and former politician, notes that of the 25 seats in the country with the most activated religious voters, he calls them, 15 of those seats exist in Queensland. Seats like Longman and Herbert, both seats which went from Labor to Liberal. Seats in the Brisbane metropolitan area that have huge numbers of Pentecostals like Bonner and Bowman in the eastern suburbs. Both big swings towards the coalition. Or another seat that's highly religious and activated, Dixon, just north of Brisbane, Peter Dutton's seat. And everybody predicted that Peter Dutton would lose his seat and he didn't. He got a swing towards him. And then we turn to Western Sydney, not the most Christian part of the country, but definitely the most religious. And Labor members there have been sounding the alarm to say the reason we had massive swings against us, and they were massive in this part of the world, is because of concerns about religious freedom. And this is what they're saying. You go to the Labor side of politics and the impact has been felt. Chris Bowen, shadow treasurer, member for McMahon, the heart of Western Sydney. Um, when he was asked what policy it was that lost them the election, he says, I think it was not actually any particular policy as such. I think it is a general impression which has built up as a result of various debates, including marriage equality, but also religious freedom more generally. It is a very urgent problem for us to tackle, partly by the way we look at policy, but partly by our general demeanour. It's essential that Labor welcome social conservatives in its parliamentary ranks so the party could appeal to suburban voters. The Labor Party has a strong tradition of people who are socially conservative but economically progressive, and we have got to make sure that tradition continues to be represented both in our party and our voters. Look, I would say this, that's been changing. For some years now, those in the Labor Party who have more socially conservative views have been on the way out. You look at recent resignations like Senator Jacinta Collins or Senator Stephen Conroy, uh, or if you look at uh, Senator Joe Bullock a little while ago, there's a lot of these guys who are quietly making their exit because they simply don't feel welcome anymore. So Chris Bowen identifies something there. Uh, New South Wales Senator Christina Keneally 
She also said we lost them, that is the seats that they lost, on the more traditional touchstone culture and social issues. I think it's because we were tone deaf. If you take the issue of religious freedom, I see a growing concern among people of faith. The Israel Folau matter, which was frankly a contract issue, spoke to a broader concern people had, and understandably so, that in expressing their faith, they are going to be howled down by other people in the community. The extent to which Labor hasn't seen to be, been seen to be standing up for people of faith did hurt us. Michelle Rowland, Greenway, Western Sydney. Again, Labor had a very real perception problem from some religious people during the campaign. I definitely detected there was a different sense during the campaign. I rarely had religion raised as an issue in the three years prior, but doing phone calls and the type of engagement you do during the campaign, it was certainly markedly different. There was a perception of a problem, and for some people that was very real. Anthony Byrne, the electorate of Holt in Victoria, he says, we're creating a perception that for some people of Christian and other faiths, that the Labor Party doesn't have a place for them on the table, doesn't want to hear their views, doesn't want to take their beliefs into account. I think that caused us substantial damage during the election campaign. I could go on. You could look at Shane Newman, for example, member for Blair up in Queensland, a stunning swing against him. That's the area around Ipswich, west of Brisbane. Uh, He was the shadow minister for immigration and he was really concerned about this and he said things about it all. The fact that it's reported that Labor MPs have attacked the former leader Bill Shorten over his criticism of Mr Morrison in the final week of the election campaign for not explicitly stating that he did not believe that gay people would go to hell. They described that tactic as a very poorly timed intervention that made it look as though we were persecuting people, particularly Christians and their beliefs. And indeed, I can't disagree with that. You see, middle Australia, the communities that swung this election, not just faith communities, but more economically vulnerable, quiet Australians, middle Australians, people who are getting on with their business, who are fundamentally, this is their characteristic, politically disengaged. They don't know many politicians, but they definitely know Israel Folau. And so the Israel Folau issue, there is no doubt in my mind, brought this issue of political correctness and opposition to religion and particularly opposition to Christian faith home to a lot of people who otherwise are not especially engaged with that issue because they all know who this guy is, even though they probably don't know any politicians other than the prime minister, if you're lucky. Um, And it was the same with safe schools, right? That brought it home to a a touch point that the average Australian felt their children. And this time it brought it home to a touch point they felt, which was the issue of their sport, a man who they looked up to, who their children heroise, uh, Israel Folau, the greatest super rugby try scorer of all time. Um, the new opposition leader, Anthony Albanese, has now urged the party to speak to more people of faith who no longer feel that progressive politics cares about them. Do you know, this has been coming for some time. Um, The honest truth is that the gap between uh, the two parties has been widening over recent years. It used to be that Labor and Liberal essentially had the same uh, moral social framework in sort of a Christian foundation. That used to be the case. In fact, Labor was long a party of Catholics and before that it was established by Methodists. Uh, And so it's been that way for ages. But they had economic differences. Like you could say, let's put it very crudely and say, well, it was the capitalists versus the trade unionists. You know, there's two different economic philosophies taking place to simplify it a great deal. But in recent years, particularly the last 10 or so, there's been a shifting and the shifting has been a new social moral framework that is working out in the social issues and social policy base of the parties and Labor has drifted, has changed their tack and they're moving away from the Christian foundation. I think even some of those MPs who we quote, who I quoted, 
are actually acknowledging that, that there's people of those traditional values who no longer feel like they belong in the party, even as members. Uh, And uh, that change has happened in a way that has meant that the electorate hasn't really caught up for a long time. So people who are politically disengaged haven't noticed what's going on. They haven't really thought this through. They've continued to vote Labor like their parents did before them, like they always have. But now you have seats in Western Sydney. No voting Western Sydney. 75% against the same-sex marriage uh, law in some some parts. Uh, Or if you go to outer southeastern Melbourne, um, these are migrant communities, these are um, uh, middle Australian communities, these are quiet Australians. As these people start to catch up with the social change, all of a sudden you have labour heartland areas that are very uncomfortable. And that's really what's been going on here. And in order to turn the Titanic around and come back from that social drift is going to be no small thing. But Labour, at least some, have taken some notice. Um, But the government's also taking notice, uh, and this is good too. Attorney General Christian Porter uh, has promised that one of his first, one of the first acts of a Morrison government will be to introduce a Religious Discrimination Act. And he said this, he said, there was enormous concern in religious Australia, from schools to churches to groups, anyway involved in organised religion. They were concerned and we saw it become a key issue during the election. And Senator Conchetta Ferravanti-Wells, a Liberal senator from New South Wales, said it's a new dawn for religious freedom. Well, we asked this question, where to now? Um, Certainly we're seeing a movement in the right direction. Certainly the fact that people of faith got on their feet and did things is a good thing and has seen fruit in these early days post-election. But there's two big things we need to bear in mind. Firstly, actions speak louder than words. We need to hold the ALP to account for what they are now saying. There are many in the ALP who are ideologically committed to a pathway that is opposed to religious freedom and a social framework that is uh, almost a totalizing ideology that has no room for key tenets of the Christian faith. Um, Here's the question, are they simply going to be happy to stop? Are they going to be happy to recalibrate, reorientate? Uh, That's a big ask. It's a big ask, particularly if you're in politics, believing sincerely Uh, that that is a moral crusade that is good and right and one that you should pursue with all your vigour. We wait and see. Likewise, though, and I don't want to lay all this at the ALP's feet, there's plenty of people, they just don't have enough power at the moment, really, within the coalition who also would spurn religious freedom and indeed would elevate other things uh, at the expense of key aspects of the Christian faith and at the expense of key opportunities for Christians to evangelise and spread the gospel. Um, they too uh, need to sit up and hear the warning. Um, So we have to wait for action. We cannot sit down and assume that the job is done. No way. Here's the second problem, though, for this one is just for the ALP, actually, and that is that they have a national platform. The national platform has only just been drafted and ratified at the end of last year, and that platform is valid for two years until they have another national conference and an opportunity to change it. And that platform really does cement a policy agenda that is the very policy agenda that concerned middle, quiet Australians and concerned faith 
communities and is frankly opposed to religious freedom. And by that, all I really mean is it's quite opposed to uh, the flourishing of the gospel through Christian communities. It, it puts holds and bars legally on that being able to take place. Um, and, you know, there was a three, it's a 310-page document. And I've done a little uh, tally here. There's 19 mentions of sexual orientation, 55 of intersex, 46 of LGBT, 35 of transgender, 30 of bisexual, 29 of lesbian, 28 of gay, along with several mentions of transphobia, biphobia, homophobia, gender gets 148 mentions, 20 mentions of gender identity, 8 mentions of gender pay gap. This already adds up to over 400 mentions of something related to the the realm of SOGI, sexual orientation and gender identity. But then you take an issue like cost of living, which Labor's famous for, five mentions. Take an issue like religious freedom, you're flat out, you need a magnifying glass to find it. There is something entrenched in their policy framework, uh, which pushes a line which is at odds with the religious freedom framework. Uh, you can look at key policies of theirs the, uh, that, 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 that through that that are expressed through those words throughout the whole thing and a simple reading of it shows you what their problem is. So here's the upshot of all of that. We can't stop praying and we can't stop acting. Much prayer and much action went into this election campaign and that made a huge difference. And firstly, continue to pray. Pray for leaders and all who are in high positions, says Paul to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2, 1. How are we doing with that? And one of the huge things that impressed me was that in the lead up to the election, we put out prayer guides. I mean, tens of thousands of these things in just the first round. And the phone was ringing hot with people wanting more and more and more. And we kept running out as we tried to keep up with demand for people who were praying for this election. And, you know, Scott Morrison took to the podium after all those, nobody predicted this. And he said, I've always believed in miracles. And I agree because I think the prayers of God's people made a huge difference this time because people were concerned and they prayed. Let's not let up in prayer. But secondly, there was action. Secondly, you know, I saw Christians across the country taking seriously the mandate given by Christ himself to be salt and to be light in this world. Why do I raise those metaphors? Well, do you know salt, what does it do? It has a preserving influence when Christians be Christian, when we are who we ought to be in Christ and we do what we ought to do in this community. What do we do? Well, actually, it it prevents the rot. Uh, When all things are turning to custard, when the meat is rotting, when Christians do what they do, it staves that off. It staves off the decline. And if religious freedom was at stake, if the gospel itself was being pushed into the margins and Christian testimony and witness was being clamped down on, that's a rot. That's a, that's a change that we can prevent by being salt. And I saw that happen. It's our job to prevent that from happening. But also the light. You know, when the light shines, it pushes back darkness. And by shutting down that religious freedom, actually, that would have quenched again parts of the gospel itself. You think a Christian school community is unable to testify to the truth of the gospel because they'd be sued for it if those policies came through with the school freedom stuff. You think of parents, Christian parents, with these flabbily worded, uncertain conversion therapy laws that would simply have put them on the hook straight away if they wanted to raise their kids according to their moral and religious values, uh, particularly around sexual orientation, gender identity issues. You know, think of hate speech laws that snare churchmen and clergy and all this who are doing their job before God to tell the truth. This is the kind of thing that we're talking about. And so when the darkness starts to encroach on those things, we shine the light in the other direction. And I saw people do that because they got on their feet. They shone light into a darkening place and there was salt in an area that was seeing decay. Uh, And so through prayer and through being salt and light, great things were achieved, obviously, because God is sovereign and because God acted. 
and God uses human agency as much as he does divine miracles of his own accord. And I think both things happened. So let's keep going. And there's a great job that lies before us, a great job. We can't let up because we, in order to protect religious freedom properly, we need to see what I call five pillars of religious freedom enacted. We need freedom of association. That allows schools and associations and other entities to continue to be Christian and testify to a Christian ethos. Uh, Freedom of speech. It allows people like Israel Folau to proclaim scripture or people like uh, Archbishop Julian Porteus in Tasmania to to write Christian messages and and not get caught up uh, in legal process for doing that. Freedom for parents. For parents to be able to say they want to raise their kids according to their religious faith and their moral values, to get them out of safe schools, uh, to be able to not have the government come sniffing around when they have a transgender kid and they're trying to do the best by that child, but the government thinks they should do, do something differently. We need freedom of conscience. That means that, you know, people who cannot, we shouldn't be forced to violate our conscience by law, whether it's referring a woman to receive an abortion for doctors and those egregious laws that exist around the place, uh, or whether or not it's, you know, people who are in, say, the wedding business, like videographers, if they can't in good conscience participate in an event, why force them? They are currently forced by law. Uh, Or indeed, freedom from discrimination. That's five things, speech, association, parents, um, um, uh, uh, conscience, and discrimination. And one of those things, one of those things, one of five is promised by the existing government. And so we have a lot of work to do to make sure that one gets through. But not only that, that one gets through, but some of these other things are also protected in law. Because when we say religious freedom, and I want to be very clear about this, at the end of the day, the interest we have is in freedom for the gospel and the truth itself. And that is something that all people everywhere might come to a knowledge of the truth, as Paul says, that is intrinsically Christian and which is essential in our time and our day. And if you want to participate in a campaign to petition this parliament to enact freedoms for all of those things, I encourage you strongly. Go to acl.org.au because we have just released and launched our religious freedom campaign and it is available there for you to sign and to get on that train because there's an awful lot more action to come over the next few years to see that we use this window of opportunity that's been divinely opened for us, that we might walk through it and continue to push for the truth and for religious freedom in this nation. Now, I'm compelled to turn for the second issue uh, on today's program to an article that was put together on the Israel Folau issue. This is an article which was written by Claire Harvey in the Daily Telegraph on May the 25th, and the title was this, Israel Folau, Your Jesus Isn't the One I Believe In. Um, Well, in what way? Well, Ms. Harvey goes on to say that the Jesus she believes in is characterized by a number of traits. I'll mention four of them, for those she puts them up front and center. First, she says he would not tell a gay person that they're going to hell. Second, he wasn't about sin and hellfire. Thirdly, he was a radical pacifist in a violent world. Fourthly, he preached tolerance and understanding in the face of hatred and despair. Um, well, there's an interesting take on matters. I feel compelled to address this because... This idea of who Jesus is has been raised a lot in public debate in recent times. I remember in the same-sex marriage debate, a lot of the arguments I saw, particularly amongst Christian people, was about, well, the Jesus I believe in would just love people and accept them, and so on and so on. Uh, Or even on the other side, it was always an invocation of who Christ is. And I want to make us all stop for a second when we do that, because that's a very serious thing to do. 
And it's very serious because it seems that it's done in a way that's flippant, when actually who Christ is and his true identity is of utmost and absolute importance. You look here, uh, she says he wasn't about sin and hellfire. Well, Jesus spoke about hell a lot. He talked about it more than any other person in the Bible. And he talked about it more than he talked about heaven. And he described it in more vivid detail than he described heaven. He says, for example, Luke 16, 23, it's a place of eternal torment. Mark 9, 43, a place of unquenchable fire. Uh, Mark 9, 48, where the worm does not die. Uh, Matthew 13, 42, where people will gnash their teeth in anguish and regret. Luke 16, 19 to 35, and from which there is no return, even to warn loved ones. He calls it a place of outer darkness in Matthew 25, 30. He compares it to a place called Gehenna in Matthew 10, 28, which is a trash heap which burned uh, indefinitely outside the walls of Jerusalem um, and all sorts of filth and vermin abounded. Um, And I suppose, you know, there's no record of Jesus speaking directly to a gay person about hell. But, you know, he told people about it. He told angry people that they were in danger of hell. He said, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire, Matthew 5, 22. Uh, He said the same to the Pharisees. He didn't say it to them because they were Pharisees as an identity group. He specifically says in the context, it's because of their hypocrisy, because they are on the outside and the way they're speaking to people, not entirely true to the true state of their soul and character on the inside. He says, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Matthew 23, uh, He said uh, about people who, who, who just lust, who, who look at a woman, in this case, um, uh, lustfully. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be cast into hell. Matthew 5, 29. He said it of people who simply don't repent and believe him. Matthew eleven twenty three. And, you know, she says here that he was someone who preached tolerance and understanding. Well, do you know what? He wasn't so tolerant that he failed to point out that the ultimate dividing line of humanity is in this. In Matthew 25, he says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, that's himself, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, the goats on his left, Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And verse 41, he says, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. It's massively serious stuff. And to wipe it away by saying, well, he was accepting and he didn't talk about sin and hellfire and it's complete rubbish. It's not what's written there. Do you know, when he confronted people, one of the singularly interesting things about Jesus' ministry is that he very quickly put his finger on their problem. You can look through all the stories in John's Gospel of how he encounters people. He encountered Nicodemus, the man whose whole life was built on righteousness, on goodness, on good deeds, on being right, on on pharisaicalism. And he said, you must be born again. You need to start all over again. Everything you've done is useless in the sight of God for your eternal salvation. Incredible stuff. Or to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. Uh, She comes out and it's no time flat when he says, go and get your husband. Straight away puts his finger on the thing that hurts the thing that's wrong. Or the rich young ruler who came out to him and said, I'll follow you wherever you go, master. And he said, go and sell everything you have. This man had a problem. 
and he put his finger on it. And that is the singular defining feature of most of the encounters that he has in the New Testament. Um, You see, Jesus is revealed to us in a certain way. And appeals to Jesus may be very common in modern debate. It may be so, as I said before, that same-sex marriage was fought in many cases with many appeals to Christ and what he was about. Or modern debates like this one invoke Jesus all the time. But it's interesting, you see, to me, that when people appeal to Jesus, not only do they seem to attest that they believe in him, but also this modern Jesus they appeal to crops up in conversation and debate with a slightly modified name. It's always a name something like this. It goes, well, Jesus to me. And, you know, Jesus to me is a very specific kind of Jesus. Jesus to me, in Ms. Harvey's case, is uh, one that wouldn't tell a gay person they're going to hell, one that wasn't about sin and hellfire, one that was a radical pacifist, one that was preached tolerance. Um, But, you know, here's the thing. There's no such thing as my Jesus. There's no such thing as Jesus to me. There is Jesus Christ and that's it. The question, who is Jesus, is not one that we answer for ourselves. Rather, the answer has been given to us. It's been revealed to us in order that we might believe it or not. And if you're going to answer the question yourself rather than receive the revelation and believe what's true, if you're going to answer it yourself according to Jesus to me, then you're not believing in Jesus at all. You're believing in yourself. You're believing in your preferences, your imagination, your likes, your dislikes, your own morality and your own sense of things. And yet, this is perhaps the only question that ultimately matters because Jesus is Lord, as they say in the New Testament, as he said in Matthew 25, where I just read, he has been appointed the judge of the living and the dead on a future day. And how we've answered that question will have eternal consequence of greatest gravity. Gravity so much as to be hell, fire or heaven. And many will endure the horror of that moment in which the judgment comes. And it'll be a moment as real as the one that you and I are experiencing right now by hearing these words, and I quote Jesus himself, depart from me, I never knew you. Do you know it is of greatest significance to me that when Jesus describes that moment of judgment in Matthew 7, he's talking of people and talking to people who are claiming to know him and claiming to know him well. He says this, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. If they didn't know Jesus, then who did they know? Do you know, without ever realizing it, they knew a Christ of their own imagination They knew someone or something other than the true Jesus who revealed himself to be believed so that we are without excuse. And please, the point of this is is that, and I speak for myself, find out who Jesus really is. Believe him, know him, don't make him up, not any of him. Pour over scripture, read the gospels, pray for revelation, because this is of ultimate and absolute and eternal importance. Because when we invoke Christ and his name, we're doing a very serious and grave thing. And you know, it tells me something that whenever this question comes up, people actually point to a couple of well-worn examples. On the one hand, you might have people say, well, I, you know, what about Jesus who went through the temple with the whip of cords? Or someone else might say, well, what about Jesus who, who um, 
who, who said to the woman caught in adultery, go and sin no more, as if they're opposed and he's some schizophrenic personality. But people point to these examples that are well-worn and they never really go into examples that are more obscure, which makes me wonder, have we read the Gospels? Do we really know who he is? Because none of us can afford to make him up, especially in this day and this age. You know, Simon Peter answered the question. He was asked directly by Christ, who do you say that I am? And he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And that's a very good place to start. And you know, the other thing is this, Christ reveals himself not necessarily to the academic mind and the knowledgeable brain, but he will reveal himself, I think, first to the seeking heart. And if we seek to know him, he will reveal himself, but we can seek him in a particular place where he is revealed in the pages of Scripture. Well, now let's return to the issue of Israel for Lao. I'm now looking into the future. I'm going to try and crystal ball gaze on this one. And I want to answer the question, what are Israel for Lao's options. Uh, he has publicly stated, of course, that he's not interested in pursuing further, uh, pursuing the avenue of appealing within Rugby Australia any further. He doesn't think they're going to give him a fair hearing. Fair enough, I say. That sounds like a pretty reasonable thing to uh, presume. But that gives him an opportunity. He has a window of time now in which he's able to take this into the mainstream courts, should he wish to do so. Um, And the question comes up, and people often want to know this, how would he go about that? Well, there's a couple of options open to him. Firstly, he could actually allege that that Rugby Australia is guilty of a breach of contract. Now, of course, Rugby Australia have claimed that he breached his contract, uh, and therefore they are able to fire him on that basis. But, of course, he could turn around and say, you're wrong. I didn't breach my contract, make the legal argument, and potentially, indeed, win. Now, I want to make this point. All the allegations early on, some of them in the press in this case, that there was some kind of special promise that he made not to post certain things on social media or that he was subject to some new clause that had been inserted into his contract to put him under new new, uh, obligations, that's all turned out not to be the case at all. That's not the case at all. And so it actually made him look bad in a way that was unwarranted. Um, Instead, what's been alleged is that he breached the Rugby Australia Players' Code of Conduct Now, the player's code of conduct is that code of conduct which applies generally to all rugby players. And it will be referred to, no doubt, in his contract to say you're bound by these terms and, you know, you then look over at the code and there they are. And so, by extension, if he breaches the code, he breaches his contract. Uh, And that's what they're alleging. Now, it's not clear. It's not clear which code exactly is being invoked. Uh, but it is being called the Players' Code of Conduct, and there is a Players' Code of Conduct available on the Rugby Australia website. You can go there and go into documentation and all the rest of it, and there it is. Um, And I'm assuming there's a good chance it's this one. If it's not, it will be one that's framed pretty similarly. So I think we can work with this. There's two clauses which could conceivably be relevant to Israel Folau's situation. One is that he's bound to this. It says, treat everyone equally, fairly, and with dignity, regardless of gender, or gender identity, sexual orientation, ethnicity, cultural or religious background, age or disability, any form of bullying, harassment or discrimination has no place in rugby. Right. Treat people equally, fairly and with dignity. Okay. Don't bully, harass or discriminate. Okay. Got it. That's the problem there for him potentially. 
However, there's another clause and it mentions social media, but it doesn't really add anything. It just says, use, use social media appropriately. By all means, share your positive experiences of rugby, but do not use social media as a means to breach any of the expectations and requirements of you as a player contained in this code or in any union club or competition rules or regulations. So it's just saying, look, don't breach the code, i.e. what I just read, in your social media usage either. Um, here's the thing. If they're going to argue that he breached something like this, let's take this as sort of a template. Maybe it's this, maybe it's something like it. The first clause actually speaks of treatment of other people. And there's no evidence anywhere that Israel Folau ever mistreated anyone. There's never been a situation where he's gone up to somebody and abused them. He's never refused to appear on the field with another player for any reason. Uh, he's never uh, engaged in dirty tactics on the field. He's never, there's no evidence of this. He's actually got quite a squeaky clean record, um, let alone that he would mistreat them on the basis of their sexual orientation uh, or any other attribute. Uh, And there's no person anywhere that we can point to that has been specifically targeted by Folau in this way. The social media post was general in nature. It amounted to the expression of an idea, and it was an expression of idea which had nothing to do with his playing of rugby was in fact his religious belief. Uh, It's not even uh, incitement to uh, mistreatment of anyone or any group because he's talking about the fact that this, of what God is going to do. He's not saying that anybody out there should go up to somebody. He's only citing someone to go and harm a gay person, for example, or indeed an adulterer or a drunkard or a a liar or or an idolater. He's not saying that. That's not what's in his post. Um, And so it's not that straightforward that he would have breached this particular requirement. Uh, What about bullying or harassment or discrimination? Well, again, bullying and harassment suggest the ongoing victimization or mistreatment of somebody. That person doesn't exist, and that's not the kind of conduct that he's being charged with. Uh, Discrimination. Well, normally discrimination suggests something more than speech. If you look look at discrimination laws around the world, and indeed in Australia, if you go to Tasmania, for example, there'll be one section saying discrimination's unlawful. And that refers to like firing someone from a job or in fact, you know, Israel Folau is the one that's actually received some kind of conduct which could amount to discrimination. But firing someone from a job or revoking their professional accreditation or refusing them an application for a tenancy or something pretty substantive like that. There's actually a different section that deals with speech, offensive speech, because it is actually a different thing. And so people bandy that word discrimination around like it means anything. Well, it doesn't usually mean um, speech of this nature, the expression of idea. There's actually cases in the UK. There's a great blog by Professor Neil Foster out there uh, on on religious freedom issues. Uh, And he points out cases in the UK where judges have said, a clause like this can't really stop someone from simply expressing their religious faith in a public place just in case somebody somewhere who disagrees with it comes across it. You know, there's pretty strong statements to that effect. And so you can see it's, it's a pretty severe limitation if these clauses go so far as to stop him from doing what he did. And so he could argue on the basis of this that none of his conduct actually amounted to a clear breach of the player's code of conduct. That's the sort of thing he could do. Uh, And indeed, I would expect him to do or his legal team to do as one of their arguments. A second key argument, which I'll deal with, and there's actually several, but the two main ones are, are these. The second one comes with what's called the Fair Work Act. In the Fair Work Act, which applies to all employees and employers, uh, Section 772 says this, an employer must not terminate an employee's employment for one or more of the following reasons or for reasons including one or more of the following reasons. And one of them, subclause F, is religion. So if Falau can demonstrate that his religion was one of the reasons why Rugby Australia terminated his contract, then he wins. Now, there's a couple of technical things here which... 
for current purposes aren't worth going into. But let's say you can get this argument up. That's how he would win. It's one of the reasons. It's religion. The onus of proof is actually on Rugby Australia to say that they did not fire him for that reason or that wasn't one of the reasons why they fired him. So they are actually on the back foot to prove this. Now, there'll be all sorts of arguments about, well, is this his religion or is it actually something else? Is it communication and conduct, which can be limited without really going to touch his religion? That's the sort of thing that will be played out in the courtrooms. It'll all get very technical. Um, How will it work out? Well, we don't know. We actually don't know until that case goes ahead. Uh, If it goes ahead, uh, Israel Folau has only until June the 8th to lodge a claim under the Fair Work Act under that section 772, which from the commentary I've read, people seem to agree it's one of his strongest points. Um, So he's running out of time, but we shall see. Uh, And in the meantime, Senator Erica Betts has sought the advice of the Fair Work Commission or the Human Rights Commission to ask whether or not uh, this could, in fact, be a breach of Israel Folau's rights by indeed uh, firing him on the basis of his expression. And we await the results of that. That could be very interesting. In the meantime, Israel Folau has options. He may choose to take them up. Watch this space and we'll bring you more on it as we can. I'm Mark Niles and that was The Truth of It.